the narrator now kind of goes to the third narrative travel. So the first one was from Mount Sinai to Kadesh Barnea. Then the second one that we just got through is from Kadesh Barnea all the way through the wilderness. And now we're going from Kadesh Barnea to the, the plains of Moab. Now we're here, back here in Kadesh Barnea, and we're going to start traveling up the eastern coast, or not the eastern coast, sorry, the eastern side of the Jordan River in order to enter the land. And what the narrator has done is, that's the 38 years they're over with. We're really given only one story from the 38 years. And now we're only a few weeks from entering into the promised land. And what God is trying to say here, what the narrator is trying to say here, is the last 38 years have not been really that eventful. It's either just been a normal humdrum of life and people dying in the desert because they're all getting old and need to die, or it's been the rebellion of Korah like on a constant basis, which most likely it hasn't been like constant rebellion like that. There's probably been a lot of complaining, um, but not rebellions like this. And so what he's saying is there's been nothing really significant in the last 38 years, so let's just fast forward, and now we're ready to enter into the promised land. But that older generation still has a few members that are alive, so we still got a few more cases of rebellion to go through, and then we're ready to enter. So we're not quite ready for them to enter because they're not all quite dead yet, but we're almost there. So chapter 20, verse 1. The entire community of Israel entered the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed at Kadesh. Miriam died and was buried there. Now that's significant. Because Miriam is now, she was the prophetess, and one of the great prophets and one of the great leaders has died, and she's not entered the land as a judgment against her rebellion against um, Moses. And there was no water for the community, and so they gathered themselves together against Moses and Aaron, and the people contended with Moses, saying, If only we had died when our brothers died before Yahweh. Why have you brought us up from Yahweh's community into this wilderness? so that we and our cattle should die here. Why have you brought up from Egypt only to bring us to this totally dreadful place? Is it not a place of grain? It is not a place of grain, figs, or vines, or pomegranates, nor is there any water to drink. How many times do we have to hear this, there's no water complaint? You probably have family members who are like this. Like Every time we get together, seriously, you're complaining about this again. Haven't we already dealt with this? Okay. Why? And you know it has nothing to do with the fact that they don't know the problem or the solution. It's just they just hate that thing or they just want to be against that thing. Like there's just some people who just want to be known as that person who's anti that. Like this is what I tell my students, some of them who like have made it their mission to rebel against dress code. And every day they come with their shirts untucked or the wrong belt and it's kind of like, and at a certain point, it's like, okay, I get some address code is not reasonable. But at the same time, like, it is what it is. Okay? It's like, so I tell them this. I said, first, do you realize that dress code is pretty much your entire future? <laughs> like, some of you are working at Taco Bell right now. They have a dress code. Okay? There's very few jobs that don't have dress codes, unless you're, like, working in your basement as a computer programmer. Okay? Dress code is the rest of your life, pretty much. Two, do you really want to be the known as a person who said, I spent my four years rebelling against dress code and I made no difference? <laughs> like, like, you're not going to change this thing. 
In fact, more public schools are going towards dress code rather than thinking, wow, these 15-year-old kids have something going here. We should really listen to them. They know what they're talking about. Okay? Like, this is a hopeless fight that you're fighting. And two, like, does that, is, is that something you can put on your resume? Like, I was the person who stuck it to the staff, and I had my shirt tail on tuck every day. That's why you should accept me to this college. Like, they're so, and you should see some, they're so proud of it. They wear this as a badge of honor. That they're, and it's like, it no longer becomes about whether dress code is legitimate or not, or reasonable or not. It no longer becomes about, like, let's actually sit down with the principal and have a reasonable conversation with them and talk about it, which some have. And some have actually changed dress code by actually sitting down and going through the pros and cons of why this is here and saying maybe this shouldn't be here, and they've been listened to, and things have changed. But these people don't care about it. They just want to be known for the person who is anti that and is trying to stick it to the man. And deep down inside, they know nothing's going to change, but that's not what they care about. Because in four years, they're gone and they know it. But what they care about is just being that person that is the thorn in your side. Because somewhere, somewhere, they have come to the conclusion that you're against them. Or they hate being here because mom and dad make me be here. And like life is way better in the public schools, which like everybody who goes to the public schools ends up coming back. Okay, no joke. Everybody who leaves and says life is better in the public school, they always transfer back like within a month. Okay, you can, we actually take bets sometimes how long it'll take them to come back. Okay, the reality is, or they can't afford it, but that's a whole different issue. That's who these people are. This is no longer about just sin or addictions or struggling behavior. This is about people who just want to be known for being anti that. It's like Dawkins. He's like the poster boy of atheism in America today. And even his own book, God is Dead, he says, it is clear that all the evidence points towards intelligent design, but we know that's wrong. <laughs> well, when he's asked, do you believe in other dimensions? He says, yes, there's at least 10 dimensions according to string theory. Do you believe that there's beings in other dimensions that are more powerful than us and can actually shape and manipulate our dimension? He says, yes. Do you believe there's a God? No. <laughs> It's very clear that it's not about reason or evidence for him. He knows the arguments and he knows what it points to, but for him, it's about being the person who's anti that. And that is what is called a high handed sin. And that is what God is condemning here. And that is why God is so harsh. And that is when you get to the book of Hebrews where Hebrews warns you, check your heart, lest you drift away into that kind of a heart. And what the book of Hebrews is, he's writing to Christians in a church, and he's warning them that they too can end up like this generation. Did they not see the power of God? Were they not delivered and saved from their slavery? Did they not taste the Spirit of God? Did they not see the miracles? Did they not agree to the covenant? And yet they died in the wilderness because of their unbelief. So you too 
pay attention to the lessons of this wilderness generation and don't let your heart drift away into a high hindrance rebellious sin. We're all capable of it. We're all capable of it. And that's what God is warning you about right here. And that's what the author of Hebrews is saying is that's the lesson that you're supposed to get from this. Because it's so easy to look at them and think they're so stupid. Don't they get it? I would never. But if you really look at your heart, there's things in your life that you are doing stuff like that. Or there's things that you used to be like that and only from the grace of God or some person that God used to come in your life and kind of rebuke you in a loving kind of a way and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm an idiot. The only thing that's keeping you from being that is the Holy Spirit. And when you're no longer listening, you're no longer sensitive, then you're doomed to drift away. And that's what this wilderness generation is warning you of. So they complain again. Verse 6, So Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and they threw themselves down on their faces to the ground, and the glory of Yahweh appeared to them. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, Take the staff and assemble the community, you and Aaron, your brother, and then speak to the rock before their eyes. It will pour forth water, and you will bring water out of the rock for them. So you will give the community what their beasts, um, the community in their beasts, water to drink. Now, once again, there's a rock here. But what's different this time? He's going to speak to it instead of strike it. He's still taking the staff of Yahweh. But this time he's supposed to speak to it instead of striking him. So Moses took the staff from before Yahweh, just as he commanded him. And then Moses and Aaron gathered the community together in front of the rock. And he said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring water out of this rock for you? Then Moses raised his hand and struck the rock twice with a staff, and water came out abundantly, so the community drank, and their beasts drank too. Now, Moses blatantly disobeyed God. And he did it in front of the people. Now, to his credit, you're like, man, I'm surprised that you didn't lose it a long time ago. Like, I, I would have, like, cracked a long time ago. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust me enough to show me as holy before the Israelites. Therefore, you will not bring this community into the land that I gave them. These are the waters of Merib, because the Israelites contended with Yahweh, and his holiness was maintained among them. Now, Moses is not allowed in the promised land. Now, remember, there is no life outside the promised land. There is no blessings of the covenant outside the promised land. Moses is not allowed into the promises of God. Now, this does nothing about heaven or anything like that. This doesn't mean anything to do with that. That's a completely different issue. But he is not allowed into the land of blessing. The most important thing in all of the First Testament, and Moses is not allowed in it. The greatest prophet, and he's not allowed into it. Why? Because he disobeyed God. But doesn't it seem that really harsh? The people are shaking their fists at God, and he's like patient. Moses just kind of messes up, and God's like, you're out. But why? He's a leader. Because remember, the way that I punish my 18-year-old daughter, who's been with me for a long time, is going to be more harsh than my 4-year-old daughter. 
And not only that, the one who stands up in front of the entire people, like the Korah, and sins like that, they're going to be punished more harshly. And three, in Moses' case, he is the voice of God. It's one thing for your pastor to stand up and disobey God and bring confusion into the church. But deep down inside we know, yeah, but he's still, he's still a human. It's probably really hard for them to see Moses as a human sometimes because he is the voice of God. His face is still shining with the glory of God. It's easy to forget that that's still happening. And when he speaks, it's as if God speaks. And when you look at him, you're seeing the glory of God like filling his head. And yet he does this. It'd be very easy to think that it's okay to do that. And remember, what the leader does marginally, the people will do to excess. And God deals with them harshly because this is what, when we get to the prophets, but when you get to the Samuel and Kings, God deals with the prophets incredibly harsh. There is no room for error with the prophets because the prophets are the voice of God. And if they mess up, then people think that it is God and he cannot tolerate it. And so that's the other thing you have to understand too. Yeah, you want more authority. You want more responsibility. It also means you reap greater judgments and consequences. It means that your consequences, your judgments are far harsher. The way that a team deals with a coach is way different than the way that it deals with a player. And we saw that with Ohio State. Trestle, all we could talk about is how he got dealt with Yet a lot of the players didn't get the same consequences that he did. They didn't make the news like he did. And there was something, too, about the fact that he had already lifted him up, himself up as an example of Christ. He was a Christian. He was a pretty decent guy. He did have a really good witness. And to watch him fall like that, the media just took a hold of that. And it's the same thing with Moses. It's the same thing with Moses. And God can't tolerate it. Hey, but what is Moses exactly doing? Okay, what, what is so wrong about what he's doing? Hey, one is this. Moses' sin, God specifically said, was because he did not trust me. Now that's exactly why God says in the book of Hebrews and Psalm 95 and other things in the Bible why Israel was not allowed into the promised land and they died in the wilderness because they did not trust God. And what's interesting is the same accusation is thrown at the wilderness generation, the same accusation thrown at Moses. You're like, yeah, but their lack of trust is completely different than Moses' lack of trust. They They didn't trust God, period. This is just one area where Moses didn't trust. It doesn't matter to God. I mean, in some ways it does, because God gets the difference between a high-handed sin of lack of trust and just a moment of not trusting God. But in other ways, it doesn't matter because it's still a lack of trust. It's still a sin. And that's exactly what the sin of the garden was. Remember, the sin of the garden was not that they ate fruit. The sin of the garden was not just that they disobeyed God, even though that was what it was. The sin of the garden is when they decided that this is what God wants, but my way is better, and I'm going to do what I want. And now Moses says, this is what God wants, but I'm going to do what I want. Now, 
I doubt he like literally took the time to consciously and logically think through that, but that's what he was doing. He was angry enough that he couldn't control himself. Faith is the only correct response. And it doesn't matter whether you trust 90% of the time or 10% of the time. When you don't trust, it's still not faith. Now, does God take all that into consideration when he deals with you? Yes, but it's still not faith. And whether it is a promise or a command, Psalm 119, verse 66, makes it very clear that trust is not trust. Psalm 119, verse 66. See, we're used to thinking the wilderness generation got judged by God because they didn't trust God in the promises. Where Moses did trust God in the promises, but he didn't trust God in the command. He didn't trust God in the command. And so Moses' failure to obey the instructions of Yahweh precisely was just as much of an act of unbelief as the people's failure to trust Yahweh's promises in taking the land. Both were punished with exclusion from the land of promise. Now that should check you as a leader. The, the, the more prominent, the more leadership, the more influence you have in the community. I'm not saying like in a staff-paid position in your church kind of a sense, but in the church, the body of Christ. The more that you have, the, the greater your witness, the more widespread is, you're going to be held a lot more. I mean, in a lot of ways, I am scared to death to be a teacher, <laughs> especially with the passages what are, that are in Timothy and that kind of stuff like, and truly scared to death a lot of times. <laughs> um, and rightfully so, because of what's expected. Second, Moses also reacted in anger and lost control. Psalm 106, verse 33 makes this clear too. That he lost control in his anger. And it became less about judgment and more about an emotional lack of control and anger. Listen, we know that some of the worst things that we can do is what we do when we lose control. And no, and no matter how much you can say, I didn't really mean that, I lost control, that's not how I really feel. And you probably really truly mean that, and they probably truly believe you in that. The reality is you still did it, and it still affected them. And it's going to take a lot to undo that. And it's going to take a lot to undo that, especially if you're a parent. And so Moses misrepresented Yahweh by making the people think that Yahweh had lost control. And that's the big one. Because the first thing that we learn about God in creation is that God is a God of order. God is a God of intentionality. God is a God of design. God is a God of self-control. And by being the representative of God and losing control, he's making the people think that God has also lost control in his anger. And you can say all you want, yeah, but they logically know that that doesn't make sense. Really? Let's look at all their complaints that they've been giving. <laughs> you would think they would logically know that God's not really trying to kill them by now, but they keep saying that. And there's so many things, even like with people in our own lives, that we're like, Don't, have you logically figured that out yet? And there's a lot of things that God probably looks in our own lives and says, that's not logical. Finally, Moses disrespected the symbol of Yahweh's presence, which was the rock. Remember, this is important. This takes understanding the previous story in Exodus to understand this. Remember in Exodus, God said, I am the rock. And he made it very clear that he was the rock. 
and then God provides the water. Then when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says that the rock was Christ, and Christ produced water for them in the wilderness. And then in the same way that Moses struck the rock, which is Christ, remember this strike the rock was a judgment, so God takes the judgment and he struck on behalf of Israel, and then he produces water of life for Israel, and then Paul says that Christ is that rock who got struck on our behalf and produced water for us, and then you literally see that on the cross where they stab Christ with a staff, and the water comes out of his side. And then First John tells us that the water and the blood that came out was the gift of God and the Spirit of God. Then you realize that, like, in some ways, it's the striking of Christ a second time. And the rock is the image of God. And the rock is the typology of Christ. And Moses, in anger, is disobeying God and disrespecting the image of God rather than speaking to it. This would be the equivalent of him getting angry and just losing control and then just hitting the Ark of the Covenant. It's a symbol of God. And he's lost control and he's disrespected something that God has made holy. And so that symbolically represents me. And that would have been powerful to the people. And that's huge. All because a very, very, good man who sacrificially has allowed himself to be abused by the people for the last 40 years, but yet keeps atoning for them, begging forgiveness for them, throwing himself on the grenades for them over and over and over again. And all intents and purposes, the most humble man that has ever lived according to God himself, the greatest prophet that has ever lived, the most obedient person in all of God's creation other than Jesus that ever lived. And yet when he lost control because of anger. And that's the warning that literally even the best of us in one moment can lose everything when we lose control in our anger and our frustration. And if you think like, wow, Yes, it can be you. Because Moses is the last, after all we've gone through in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, Moses is the last person you would ever expect to act like this. And he did because you put anybody in the right circumstances, in the right pressure, in the right environment over a long period of time, and we're all capable of anything. And one of the first steps to protecting yourself from sin is acknowledging that we're all capable of anything. And the minute you say, I could never, you've automatically lost. You've automatically lost. You can think of the most horrific sin that could ever be performed and never say, I could never. <laughs> because you don't fully understand the heart of man and you don't fully understand what the right circumstances and the right time will make you do. And that's the warning. And Moses misses out on a lot. Can you imagine coming so close? I mean, he can go through his entire life and say, yeah, but God, I was faithful, 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 faithful. Just that one moment. That one moment brings everything crashing down. But at the same time, here's what's so amazing about God. 
when God writes the epitaph of Moses at the end of Deuteronomy, he praises God, Moses. He, he remembers him. He honors him. And no matter how horrible this lack of trust was and how catastrophic it was before the, and how consequential it was and how much he missed out and how much it collapsed his ministry and how much it cut him off from the ultimate blessings of God in this life. In the end, God still says, there's no servant like my Moses. What God chose to remember about Moses was his obedience and faithfulness. There was harsh consequences, but that's not what God remembered him for. Because ultimately, in God looks at the heart. Same thing when you get to Elijah. Elijah quits. He says, I'm done. Find somebody else. And God says, okay, but you've got to do this and this first, and then you can find your replacement. And Elijah says, forget that. I'm just going to find my replacement. And then God fires him. Yet all throughout Scripture, how is Elijah remembered? A great man of God. Because even though one incident can really mess up your life and bring consequences, that one incident is not enough for God to forget what your heart was really about. And that's the amazing thing about God is He will not tolerate sin. But at the same time, He looks at your heart and He deals honestly with who you are and He remembers you accurately for who you are and what your heart was overall. And that's the beauty of God. And that's the God who can slap you in one moment as he's hugging you and telling you how much he loves you. And that's important to remember with people's lives too. As people fail and fall off their pedestals and leadership in our church, we cannot tolerate that. And we must deal in consequences very accurately and proportionally to what they've done. And they may lose their place in leadership, but at the same time, we can't forever remember them as the person who did that thing in that one time. If God, who has every right to remember you as a horrible, evil sinner that you are, refuses to memorialize you for your one failure, then we should refuse to memorialize, memorialize a leader for their one failure. And in the end, we say, yes, what they did was wrong. Yes, they have to read the consequences. Yes, maybe they lost the right to be a leader. But in the end, overall, they still were a good person. Overall, I mean, in the we're all sinners kind of a sense. <laughs> and overall, they brought a lot of good to the kingdom of God. And a lot of people came to know Christ. And a lot of people were blessed. And da, 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 da. And we need to remember that lesson from God. We can't just look at the judgment and the consequences of God and forget the mercy, but we can't forget the mercy so much that we excuse all this stuff all the time. It's the tension, and the tension is also hard. And the only way you can maintain the tension is by being in the Holy Spirit. And that's why the other leaders in the church, they need to really thoughtfully come together in prayer and really seek God out and ask, how are we going to look at this person's life as we deal with this mistake or sin that they've just committed? And how are we going to present them before the congregation? God dealt with him publicly and consequentially. But before his congregation of all saints throughout all time, God honored Moses and lifted him up as a great man of God. And it means it's the same way you're supposed to look at yourself too. 
There are so many things that I know that you guys, I mean, the fact that you're even here says that you have a heart for God. I mean, this is a huge sacrifice to come here and drink from the fire hose every week and, and process all this kind of stuff. And, and you need to look at that in your own life. Yes, there's a lot of things that I can look at my life and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm still dealing with this. How can God love me? How will God ever use me if I keep dealing with this all the time? At the end, we need to remember that God sees us for our entirety. And one of the things that I need, we need to pray for is to give us, to pray that we would have the eyes to see us in the same way that God sees us. Not just other people, but even our own selves. I had a, um, there's a really famous professor by the name of um, Howard Hendricks. He was my professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. And one thing that he told me, us, not like me specifically, but all of us, he says, you need to get a three-by-five card. You need to write your greatest sins, failures, weaknesses, faults, whatever, on one side. And then on the other side, write your greatest gifts that God has given you in the kingdom of God and put it in your Bible. And every passage you read, you take that card out and you say, what is this passage saying about my sins and my faults? And then you flip it over and you say, what is this, sin? What is this passage saying about my gifts? And if you can go to every passage that way, the Holy Spirit will work in a way to help you see yourself for who you really are. And it will allow you to actually change in your faults and weaknesses and use your gifts. And eventually you'll find yourself rewriting that card over and over again throughout the years. And you'll have a more healthy perspective of who you are. And this is why the Bible says you shouldn't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. I mean, don't go to the extreme of pride and forget your sin. But don't beat yourself up and wallow in your self-misery and forget the fact that you do have value. I mean, you are supposed to think of yourself highly as a child of God, but not more highly in a prideful kind of sense. And we need to ask God to give us the eyes to see ourselves and each other and the world for the way that he sees them, rather than for the way that we think we should see them based on our limited understanding of the Bible and the little passages we can rip out and use as evidence for why I had the right to, to view them this way. Because <laughs> whether you're intentionally or unintentionally doing that, we all kind of fall into that trap. Does that make sense? Any questions? Comments? Comments?